guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Lauren. I'm Nisha, and we are very excited to have Thomas Sanderson joining us here today. Mr. Sanderson directs the Center for Strategic and International Studies Transnational Threats Project, where he investigates terrorism, transnational crime, global trends, and intelligence issues. He has conducted field research in more than 70 countries and has authored or co-authored 15 reports, as well as opinion pieces, debates, and articles in newspapers such as the New York Times and Washington Post. Welcome to the show, Mr. Sanderson. Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) We wanted to start off with some questions about the nature of the work you do. So last night in your talk at the Athenaeum, you discussed speaking directly with people such as 16-year-old ISIS fighters, um, people such as those. Um, How do you gain access to these types of restricted spaces and the people within those spaces? That's a great question, Lauren. Thank you. Well, around the world, we try to interview everyone along the spectrum of militancy, which includes militants, insurgents, terrorists those who are trying to counter them and everyone in between from foreign service officers to journalists to social and community activists to clergy to refugees. So the first thing we do in a a conflict zone or a battle space where we have restricted movements or access and where it's dangerous to maneuver as a Westerner, we try to find what's called a fixer. So I will go to a trusted individual such as a British foreign service officer in Turkey or an American who's running an NGO along the border of Pakistan. And I'll go to them and I'll say, I'm coming for five days. These are the types of people I want to get in touch with. Can you introduce me to some people? And can you provide me with a fixer? So the fixer is the key person here. That's a person who's a local individual who speaks the language, knows the customs, can read all sorts of signs that indicate trouble or opportunity. And then that person is my guide. And I trust that person to keep me safe. And because that person has already worked for a prominent Westerner, whether it's a bureau chief for the New York Times or Associated Press or for a leading NGO, I have a pretty good feeling that they're safe to work with. Okay. And do you ever feel, for instance, with the 16-year-old ISIS fighter, is there, any ever sen- is there ever any sense that there will be repercussions for that individual for interviewing and engaging with the West? I- indeed. And I try to make sure that I don't publicize their images or their statements in areas where that can jeopardize their safety. And of course, because everything is available on the web worldwide, it is hard to do that sometimes. So there's certain ways that I can do that. But generally, I ask them up front, is it okay if I use your name? Is it okay if I use your image, et cetera, et cetera? And they will tell me yay or nay on that. So I also make sure that their physical security and my physical security are insured to the degree that you can do that overseas Mm -hmm. in a a battle zone. So for example, the 16-year-old fighter who I interviewed along the Syria-Turkey border, my fixer located a hotel, convinced that fighter that this was, first of all, a safe engagement, that I wasn't part of intelligence or law enforcement or special operations. And also I had to be convinced that this individual wasn't going to try to harm me and that it was someone who wanted to share their opinion. So we found a hotel that both of us agreed would be a safe space. And I always choose the best hotel possible because I hope they have the best security possible Mm -hmm. in that the individual has to pass through metal detectors before they get to where I am inside the hotel. And that can be either in a hotel room or it can be in a lounge or something like that. Unfortunately, overseas, many of the hotels I go to, even the better ones, when people walk through the metal detector and it goes off, nobody stops them. So I also have to eyeball that person and get a sense of whether they're carrying a weapon or a bomb, which is hard to do. Um, 
So nonetheless, there's a, a significant degree of risk for me, for that individual, and for the fixer themselves. So a lot of risk all around, but with risk comes great opportunity and rewards. Yeah, wow, very interesting. Um, kind of expanding on that a little bit more, and this is a bit of a broad question, but we were just wondering, what is the most rewarding and terrifying part of your job? The most rewarding part is engaging people who ostensibly are adversaries or enemies. And oftentimes you find commonalities with them and it's very rewarding to sit down and have a conversation with individuals that may be viewing the United States as um, inimical to their goals and their aims. And, th and this is not just terrorists because of course I wouldn't find a lot of common cause with terrorists at all, but there's a lot of gray areas here. It's not all black and white. I've interviewed ethno-nationalist insurgent groups in the Southern Philippines and Southern Thailand. And these are groups that are not trying to harm Americans or others other than those that they feel are oppressing them. And so when you talk to them, they have great things to say about the United States and, and want us to help them in their struggle. So those are some of the more rewarding times, talking to clergy, talking to uh, refugees, people in need and being able to give them perspective, potentially help uh, are very rewarding things. But just anyone overseas is interesting to talk to. And when you go to their country, and as you'll see this afternoon in the seminar, if you visit their cultural sites, if you speak a few words of their language or more, possibly, they show great appreciation for that because people think some, think Americans are not interested in foreign cultures, that we have a, an attitude of superiority. And when you come there and you say, oh, I visited this mosque or this synagogue or this natural feature of the country, their eyes light up and you've established rapport right off the bat. So that's very rewarding. Some of the scarier moments have certainly been where I've been in the hottest zones, and that included um, in Pakistan in September 2008, I was staying at the Marriott Islamabad and I walked out of the hotel maybe 30 or 40 minutes before a dump truck pulled up in front of the hotel with a 1600 pound bomb and completely destroyed the hotel and killed 55 people. And my room was incinerated and my bags were still inside. I was going to an appointment and I had left just before it happened. And that was my closest call. Another time I was in the southern Philippines in Mindanao and I went there to interview the commander of the Moro Islamic Liberation Front and that was a fascinating discussion. But it was an interview with a member of the militant group Hizbu Tahrir who gave us a little bit of a scare. We were sitting with him at a coffee table just like the one we're sitting at now and my assistant and I were sitting across from him and he was totally jacked and um, excellent English speaker and really engaged in what we were discussing. And we had a tea set and water glasses and bottles on the table. And we asked them the question. I said, look, I interviewed your colleague, another Hizbu Tahrir member, they're in 40 countries, in Kyrgyzstan earlier this year. And he said X, Y, and Z. And then I asked this individual in Mindanao, look, the Saudis have offered Israel recognition if there's a two-state solution. So here is the leader of the holiest lands for Islam, Saudi Arabia, going to offer Israel recognition if there's a true solution here. What does that mean for Hizbu Tahrir, whose goals include wiping Israel off the map and into the Mediterranean, as they say? And he sits there for a couple of seconds, and then he says, like Ahmadinejad said, we're gonna wipe them off the map. And he takes his arm and he smashes the glasses and the cups on the table across the floor. This is in a hotel lobby. 
And my buddy and I are sitting there thinking, oh my God, what's gonna happen now? And he was sitting in an aggressive posture like this across from us and he just backhanded them and shattered everything with his bare hands and arm. And we thought, oh man. Oh my <laughs> so that was definitely a little bit uh, scarier uh, situation. And then in Kuwait, I was there with another assistant of mine and who's Jewish. And in a discussion around a dinner setting, which was Bedouin style, everyone's on the floor. They have two giant um, uh, tablecloths spread out and the food is just poured on the tablecloths. It was just an amazing thing. And we're having a discussion and there's a, a leader of a, of a Syrian opposition group, a 14,000 person strong militant group, who's there raising money. So he's a militant group commander. And I don't really know where along the spectrum he is, don't forget, there are, there's a lot of space along the spectrum and a lot of gray areas. Some people are fighting a legitimate fight. Others are just pure murderers. So we don't know exactly where this guy falls, but he's probably not on the extreme end, given that he's freely engaging some of the people we're with. But these were all Syrian professionals in this room at someone's apartment. So we've gone there. It's our third night there. We leave the next morning. And one of the guys says... Tom, where are you from and what's your family background? I said, oh, my family's Scottish and Irish and French and, and I'm Catholic. And we discussed that for a few minutes. And then the guy says to my assistant, I'll just say his name's Peter. <laughs> it's not Peter. He goes, Peter, we think you are Jewish. And I got to tell you that it was very cold and quiet for about 10 seconds while my assistant responded. And it was a little nerve wracking. And here we are again with militants, Muslim militants, and a lot of people who are there to raise money to support groups whose at least initial goal is to overthrow the Syrian regime. And for many of them, the likely next step is to try to overthrow Israel. So it was a little bit nerve wracking, but my, my friend discussed his religion, discussed where he was from, which is in the United States, and discussed his opinion on a number of things. And he, he didn't suddenly cave and say, oh, I don't think what Israel is doing is right, et cetera, or anything like that. He stood his ground, but he was uh, in, a, in a sort of neutral territory with regard to that discussion. And we got through the discussion and got out of there, and he was he was definitely nervous. And this is a an individual who can handle himself in a lot of different places, and he handled himself very well here. But nonetheless, it was uh, one of those moments. Wow. And how do you kind of manage that fear when you're engaging in these kind of activities? Like, do you, have you got no point where you're numb to the fear sure. or? That's a great question, Lauren. And the thing is, I've done, I don't know, 15, 1600 interviews over 10 years in nearly 70 countries. So I have definitely gotten used to being in tough spots. This same assistant of mine and a fixer were on the Syria-Turkey border about two years ago and we went to visit the location of a bombing in Turkey and we were not in that town for 10 minutes before the police came up to us and pulled us into the police station and detained us and questioned us and the the Syrian refugee fixer we had was clearly nervous my assistant was nervous and that was not the first time I had been detained and I've been through things like the bombing in Pakistan and the interview with the fairly aggressive Hizbut Tahrir member. So this to me was par for the course. I understood what was going on and I had recently met with the Turkish ambassador to the US. So I was at least able to say, I just met with ambassador so-and-so. Not that that meant anything to them, but at least it was something to demonstrate a little bit of credibility and 
reason for being there. And so we described what was what we were doing, but we were all in pretty thick beards. So we grow beards before we go overseas. We typically uh, wear local clothes. Here we're in Western clothes, and but we have beards, and our, our fixer's clearly a, a Syrian. So the, the police immediately spotted us and, and pulled us in and took our passports and took um, photographs of them and you know gave us a pretty decent questioning. And then we, we left and soon thereafter, within an hour, we actually interviewed four members of the group, Arar al-Sham, and then had another incredibly exciting time where all in the same day, the detaining, <laughs> the interviewing of the militants, and then we went to the headquarters of an NGO, a Turkish NGO, that we were told was facilitating the movement of fighters over the border. And we were able to work our way inside the compound and uh, get a few photographs and videos of what was going on there and all in a day's work. And I'll say that was one of the greatest field visit days I've ever had. So to answer your question, yes, you do get used to it. And getting used to high pressure situations in a foreign country is a great skill to develop. To develop. And it takes a long time to get there, but it is essential to have. Thank you. Um, so through your travels and interviews, your job demands that you are able to identify threats within a larger innocent population. As we have seen with the Western portrayal of ISIS, distinctions are often lost between these separate groups. What is the role of counterterrorism experts like yourself in producing responsible and thoughtful analysis to, co to contribute to controversial discourse like the discussion of ISIS? Nisha, that is a dynamite question. It is so essential because when you're making policy in the United States, you're looking at the threat reporting, looking at the media, it's very easy to see things again in a black and white way. And there is a huge distinction between groups. So we have always found our purpose to include bringing those distinctions from the field back to the policymakers and the counterterrorism practitioners in a wide audience through the media and Congress. And it's very important because if you treat things in a black and white manner, then you are immediately isolating an entire population, an entire group of people, and those are often your allies. Let's not forget that the number one victims of Al-Qaeda and ISIS are Muslims, okay? So we need allies among Muslims and others around the world, which is why when people like Donald Trump say, we're not gonna let Muslims in the country, that's pretty absurd because they are our best allies on the ground against ISIS and we need them and to exclude them simply would not make any sense. Nonetheless, back to your question, it, it is important to bring those distinctions so that when you explain it to folks, you can see the nuances in struggles around the world. I go back to the example I gave Lauren earlier, which was the ethno-nationalist insurgents in southern Philippines and southern Thailand who are fighting against what they find to be oppressive government restrictions on their culture. This also happens in western China, where the Chinese ethnic Han, which make up 91% of China, are suppressing the culture of Muslim Uyghurs in the west, not allowing them to use their language in school, to practice religion, a lot of places do this, and it's important to not isolate those folks or treat them as enemies. In fact, your duty is to highlight their struggle and um, try to help them uh, advance their, their goals in any way that's appropriate. And that's important because when it comes to the war of words and images, it's very important that Muslims around the world see Americans and others coming to the legitimate defense of those who are being repressed by overbearing governments by other ethnic groups, other religious groups, and that's really important to do. That's so interesting. Um, 
To move on a little bit more to your talk last night, um, you mentioned often, and you've done this in your articles as well, that terrorism is taking on a new brand. Um, in your Washington Post article, you even argued that America is failing to imagine how terrorist threats are fundamentally changing in nature. Could you speak more to these changes and why you think America is having such a hard time adjusting their definition of terrorism? Well, it was very shocking for Americans to have 9-11 take place. And they, and I think everyone among us, you, when you initially have that experience, you're at a loss for understanding of who attacked you, why they attacked you. And you build this initial understanding of what that was, and then you hold on to it because now you have some sense of understanding. And as things change, that disrupts your understanding of things. But the reality is there's constant flux in all aspects of life and certainly in the aspect of handling and understanding adversaries. So we have seen all kind of change. They are a group that has targeted the United States but has weakened over the years. And out of ISIS, out of Al-Qaeda came Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which is ISIS today. And that is one of those changes that we've seen. Most important among that change, I would say, is the use of social media. Al-Qaeda simply did not have this kind of talent or the tools to do it. Now, they were able to put things online. They've distributed DVDs and sermons that were extremists by Anwar al-Awlaki, for example. So it's not that they were not accessing the web in mines around the world and through chat rooms and whatnot, but ISIS, which now puts out 90,000 messages, videos, and images a day, far outstrips them and anyone else. They are super sophisticated. Another way that terrorism has changed is that in particular ISIS again, is their funding scheme. And they've developed an incredibly durable local portfolio of funding. Whereas many militant groups in the past have had to rely on state sponsors. And that state could come under pressure from the United States or change their mind with regard to how they treat that group or view its goals and could pull that funding back in. I, I call it a leash. And they can yank that leash on the, on the militant group as we've seen happen in Pakistan or with some of the Gulf states in the Arabian Persian Gulf. So ISIS smartened up, they saw this and recognized, okay, you need to have all of your funding or maximize local funding. It's sort of like a doomsday prepper who builds a home on a mountainside and has their own water and solar power and wind power and grows their own food, which all happen to be good things and, and separate from that. But someone who has that kind of mindset that they don't want to be impacted, they want to be completely off the grid. And ISIS in a very significant way is off the funding grid for terror financing. They still get donations from the Gulf, from people all around the world, including the United States. But it's just harder to do that, first of all, to send those donations. And second of all, it's just a liability. It's a vulnerability for ISIS to do that. So that's one way in which they've changed. And they are able to put out a message that is very stimulating, provocative, and empowering for people. Al-Qaeda did that too. Hezbollah has done that. Other militant groups have done that. But ISIS has done the best job of all of those things. And you talked about the role of social media, and I know that's something that is particularly coming to college campuses and places where there are, you know, education going on. And I was wondering if you could talk about how college campuses are supposed to be, you know, countering these efforts by ISIS. Well, it's a it's a tough battle, and I'll first start by saying that the U.S. government began an effort to counter them actually many years ago under the Bush administration and it failed. And under the Obama administration, it has also failed. There have been some successes here and there, but it is extremely difficult to counter the social media. 
what is a good thing to do on college campuses is to discuss all of the aspects of what's going on so people understand just how terrible a group like ISIS is, but at the same time recognize what other groups are up to and, and all the others along the spectrum. But the, the majority of these groups are groups that should be degraded and defeated if possible, but we also need to be realistic about that. I think it's important that people understand how serious it is that Twitter and Facebook and other means are used to promote these images, YouTube as well. And there are now efforts to restrict those by those companies to make sure that that content is not put online. So if it's shared by college students, it, it, I'm not gonna tell people what they should say, of course, but it shouldn't be shared in a, in a way that is meant to entertain. It should be shared in a way to highlight the threat that these individuals in these groups present. Um, and I'm sure that you you all see these videos, you discuss them, and they're extremely easy for anyone to get. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit more on kind of the role that the educational institutions, particularly those kind of in the areas in the Middle East, um, like the role they play in kind of spreading this propaganda and perhaps providing a, an access point for the ISIS members and other terrorists to kind of access these younger, vulnerable populations? Well, ISIS doesn't have a lot of trouble accessing them. And I, and I don't think educational institutions play a role in, in enabling the access, but it's really just all the factors in the environment. It's the marginalization that young men and women experience, economic marginalization, especially women, but cultural, uh, religious marginalization, participating in the life of a country, having a social contract that actually exists where you give up a certain amount of rights to your government, they're supposed to protect you and provide an environment in which you can get a job, raise a family, and have an education and actually make a life for yourself. So it's very easy for ISIS to access these people and many of them come to ISIS because of the state of affairs that they're in. But there are of course extremist mosques, there are hardline educators, there are hardline members of government, there are financiers and others who do encourage the connections between ISIS and broader populations. But the reality, I'll go back to what I said first, is ISIS does not need to do a lot of advertising. Bad governance, corruption, lack of jobs, marginalization, that provides the ground for, a very fertile ground for ISIS to recruit. And people seek it out, or mm -hmm. others will seek the uh, the individuals out, but nonetheless, it's uh, it's quite simple to do it, and that is what's so scary is there are very few barriers, physical or otherwise, to keeping young people out of groups like ISIS. Yeah. So our next question is a hypothetical, and it's fairly broad. So feel free to tailor it or narrow it however you would like. But we were wondering, in your opinion, what necessary changes, if any, need to be made to U.S. foreign policy with regards to counterterrorism? Sure, that's a great question. Terrorists are able to feed on U.S. foreign policy, our support for Israel, our support for the Saudis, our support for the Emiratis, our support for a wide range of countries to say, look, the United States is only here, along with Europeans and others, including Chinese, <laughs> to exploit the resources in traditional Muslim and Arab lands. And it goes way beyond Arab lands. Um, in fact, the majority of Muslims are non-Arab around the world. Uh, but it's about this narrative of exploitation by a lot of countries, but foremost, the United States and, and Europe in the support of regimes whom they think are corrupt and illegitimate governments. Now, 
there are legitimate reasons for why we support governments that are not so squeaky clean. And it's because those governments play pivotal roles in their regions, because they're sitting on top of vast energy reserves, because they have uh, strong cultural connections to the United States, because those states may be vulnerable to other states, whether we're talking Saudi Arabia and Iran, Israel and some of its neighbors, and going well beyond that. So we do often partner with countries with questionable uh, values, and which of course reflects negatively on us and makes people question our values, in mm -hmm. fact. Um, so it's very difficult to change much of what we do today. I'll, I'll say, you know, we've been doing this for an awfully long time and that is not a reason to not seek the change. All I'm trying to say is that there's a reality to why we've been doing it because the U.S. has national and global security goals, security, free trade, protection of our allies. And to reach those goals, we've had to essentially partner with some of these regimes. Now, the United States, I think, fails to use all of its pressure and weight sometimes. I often hear when I'm overseas in lots of countries where people say, why aren't you doing more to pressure our leaders? They definitely... Um, are fearful of U.S. pressure. They, they bend to U.S. pressure. The opposition wants the U.S. to pressure these governments. And here I'm talking about Turkey, for an example. And people, don't, people wonder why we don't exert ourselves more significantly overseas. And I think many Americans would say, hey, we're doing way too much. Mm -hmm. uh, in some cases, in other places, Americans clearly think we're not doing enough. It is very difficult. We have relationships with, I think, officially 193 countries. And we are in it to win it, just like any other country. So we're out there competing and we're playing hard and we, we don't necessarily play the role of the good guy or the policeman all the time because we are a competitive country and we have things that we want to attain. So the foreign policy element is very difficult. I think it is important to review our foreign policy regularly to see where we can make a difference, where we can exert pressure on regimes that are doing bad things to their people so that that cannot be used against us. But it just seems like we're always at the behest of these local powers because they have things we need. Mm -hmm. And when you need things, you have to negotiate and compromise. You know, someone said to me on Capitol Hill one time that the definition of compromise is um, taking something good and something bad and getting neither out of it. And I think that is a good good thing, good way to describe it. And I think that's often what we get in foreign policy. We're seeking something that we would consider good. We have to accept bad partners sometimes and bad demands from those partners. And what comes out of the wash is something that's convoluted, neutral, has a bunch of different sides and dimensions to it and is never going to make everyone happy. That is another thing I wanna point out with regard to foreign policy. You cannot make everyone happy and you need to stop. We need to stop trying to for those that are trying to make everyone happy or think we should make everyone happy. The world is too complex. Players are too different to think that U.S. foreign policy with its expansive nature and many goals is going to make all players satisfied. Look at the Iran nuclear deal. Now, a lot of people came out of that partners satisfied and quite a few came out of it unsatisfied. But I believe and it's a great example of it is the best we could have gotten and there was no good alternative. Thank you.
Well, on the topic of never making everyone completely happy, um, our last question, which we ask all of our guests, has to do with success. Um, so our question to you is, what is your personal definition of success, and what advice would you give to college students in defining success for themselves? That's a great question. I think I define success by realizing in these certain moments in my work that I'm making a difference and that people find value in what I do. So when I go testify before Congress, I do a media interview, I go to brief a member of the intelligence community, speak to student groups, and I see people learning and understanding based on what I've done and what my team has done, and I have a fantastic team behind me, that is what I would call success. And I really enjoy my job. It's a fantastic job. I get to meet many people and travel. So those are elements of success that I would consider um, notable. And the second part of that was about students. What advice for students? Or? And defining success for themselves. Defining? Oh, well, you know, I've, I've been given a lot of good advice on how to define success or how to find success yourself. And the piece that I always hear from people who are you know well ahead of me in the realm of success and years in, in work is do what you like because you'll be successful at things you like. And when you do things, and if you have to start out early doing something you don't like because it's an entry-level position, do that job exceptionally well. So any job you have, do exceptionally well. And at some point, you will find yourself through those successes, through demonstrating to people that you can make a difference, you will be in a position to take on opportunities that really uh, scratch that itch you have professionally. I always tell people who are interviewing with me or asking advice on interviews, I say one of the best things you can do to be successful in your job is to make your boss's job easier. <laughs> and that is really important <laughs> because then you will ingratiate yourself with that individual. And then that in individual typically, and I do this and my, a lot of my friends do this, they will then reward those individuals with things they know they like, a trip out to the CIA, a trip out to an aircraft carrier, um, you know, a meeting with a particular head of state who's visiting or an opportunity to share in consulting work or uh, to go to lunch with a visiting dignitary, things like that, that are rewards. And that just generates a virtuous cycle where everyone is helping make one another's job easier and then you generate that reward system. So, you know, work incredibly hard at any job you have, make yourself useful to other people and, um, and gravitate towards the things that you really like to do. Not just because there's a, a, a great financial reward. I, I will tell you, I did not get into this job because of the money. It's, this is not a job where you find a lot of money. But when you do well, and I've seen this with my own experience and that of my colleagues, when you do well, others notice it through your publications, through your work on TV, through your testimonies, whatever. And then you start to get invited to do things in the consulting realm where you make more money. And so that's been a good example and a surprise to me when I saw that start to happen. And so that's a, a great example of realizing um, an extra benefit just by doing what you like to do, whether it was lucrative or not. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Sanderson. Um, that's all the time we have for our show today. Uh, to all our, our listeners out there, remember to stay hungry. <laughs>